Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the TM366 Basic Christian Doctrine Podcast. Hope you've all been doing well and finding things to keep yourself occupied. I know we've got a lot of students that have picked up full-time jobs since you've gone home, so that's certainly keeping you busy. But I imagine some others of you that don't have jobs are going a bit stir-crazy. It's the situation my kids find themselves in. So we've taken up yard games since we can't take them to playgrounds or to visit any of their friends or anything like that. My favorite is one that we've actually bought called Flickin' Chicken, where you have rubber chickens that you're trying to throw and hit a target. So if you're still around town and you see some crazy kids running around throwing chickens, you now know where I live. Uh, Please try not to prank me too much. So that's the random piece of information about how my life is looking. If you've got anything random and interesting, feel free to share it. I can maybe pass it along to the class and help lighten the mood a little bit. On to course content. We are starting our fourth unit, which is a unit on the doctrine of the church. And I've shared a couple of different times that as we progress, we are covering content that is more and more disputed among Christians. So the doctrine of the Trinity is virtually universally accepted by Christians today. The doctrine of the hypostatic union starts to leave out some groups, like Coptic Christians in Egypt, for example. By the time we get to justification, we see the split between Protestants and Catholics, a huge split. But here, at the doctrine of the Church, you'll find that virtually every denomination has a slightly different understanding of what it means to be the Church. That makes this a particularly tricky doctrine to teach. So what I like to emphasize uh, in the first lecture is the theoretical foundation of what the church is. Remember that there are four sources of theology, scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. In tradition, there is a creed known as the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed. It's a long name, but don't worry, you don't have to remember it. Now, this creed summarizes the basics of the faith, including the doctrine of the Trinity. So this council that developed the creed helped clarify that doctrine for the first time nearly 1,700 years ago. Now, as a result of this creed, many Christians accept the same fundamental view of what it means to be the church, But when it comes to applying what this fundamental view means in context, that's where a lot of the disagreement comes in. So what I'm going to ask you to do is that all students memorize the four attributes of the church that come from this creed. Then I'm going to walk you through a few different perspectives, how a few different groups might interpret these attributes. I'm going to ask that each student learns one perspective. So not all three perspectives, pick one, either the one you find most interesting, the one that you can most easily remember, or maybe the one that matches up with the sort of church that you attend. Either way, just memorize one for the test and not all three. Okay, so let's go on to the content. If you're following along, much of this is in PowerPoint 4.1. The attributes of the church come from a clause in this creed. The creed includes confession of faith in God the Father Almighty, in Jesus Christ, in the Holy Spirit, with further details for each of them, but then it concludes by confessing belief in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. 
So in a very general sense, we can define what these terms mean. The church is one in the sense that it is unique and united. It is holy in the sense that it is set apart. This is often why you see Christians or members of the church called saints or holy ones in the New Testament. For example, in 1 Corinthians 6, the church is called Catholic. Now, the word Catholic technically just means existing everywhere. Today, we often associate it with the Roman Catholic Church. And the reason that church has that name is because it is the church that exists everywhere whose leadership is in Rome, so Roman Catholic. But in this creed, when we confess Catholic, it's not necessarily referring to the Roman Catholic Church per se. So even if you're not Roman Catholic, your denomination probably still accepts the idea that the church should exist everywhere. We see this in the Great Commission, where the disciples are told to bring the gospel to all nations. We see this also in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, for example, where Paul talks about how the Holy Spirit breaks down dividing walls among different groups so that they can all be one in Christ. Finally, the church is apostolic. This means somehow it is connected with the apostles. Now, I found a helpful acronym here that has helped students do better on the test is ACHU, minus one O. So A-C-H-O, apostolic, Catholic, holy, and one. Christians generally agree that these adjectives should describe what the church is. Now, let me clarify what I mean when I refer to the church. I'm not necessarily referring to a building or to one local group of gathered Christians. Rather, when we talk about the doctrine of the church, we are referring to all Christians who are currently alive or who have ever lived, even if they've died and gone to be present with the Lord. Together, all believers make up or constitute what is known as the church in theology. So, that global body should be one, it should be holy, it should be Catholic, and it should be apostolic. Now, if you're following on your PowerPoints, we're going to go a bit out of order because I'm going to have to do an exercise I normally do differently. You can go on down to slide eight. I'm going to walk very briefly through three different perspectives on what these adjectives actually mean in real practice. The first is a Roman Catholic perspective taken from the Council of Trent. I should note that some things have changed a bit since Trent, thanks to a council called the Second Vatican Council. That gets to be more complicated, so I usually don't address it in an undergraduate class. But especially if you're Roman Catholic, be aware that things have developed some since the content that I'm providing you. Okay, so what does the Roman Catholic Church mean by these attributes? Well, when it says the church is one or Catholic, Roman Catholicism typically thinks of this in an institutional sense. Outside of the institution of the one true church, which is the Roman Catholic Church, there is no salvation and no church. The church is Catholic in the sense that it is a single institution with a single governance and a single theological conviction, but it is still found spread across the world and across time. 
And in fairness to the Roman Catholic Church, it is arguably the largest church in terms of geography and in terms of influence in a wide range of cultures. And I said arguably there, but I, I really don't even think there's much of a dispute. So Catholicism says if you want to be one, if you want to be Catholic, you have to be a part of the Roman Catholic Church. What about holiness? Catholicism says to be holy, that you need to strive to live a good life, but generally Christians are still going to sin. So there should be church discipline, there should be confession and penance, but excommunication or kicking people out of the church should be a rare exception, because generally Christians will remain sinners. Finally, what does it mean to be apostolic? Well, here, Roman Catholicism appeals to an idea known as apostolic succession. To be apostolic means that you can trace your leadership back generation by generation all the way back to the apostles. So the Roman Catholic Church can argue that historically both Peter and Paul helped plant the church in Rome. Paul's ministry in Rome is attested to by the letter to the Romans, but Peter had already planted a church before Paul wrote. So, we also have historical records where we know the successors to Peter and Paul, generation to generation, from the first century all the way to the 21st century. If you do not have that lineage, then your leadership cannot be traced back to an endorsement by the disciples, and therefore, Catholicism says, you are not an apostolic church. So, the Roman Catholic perspective on these attributes. This perspective differs considerably from most Protestants. So let's talk about the view of Reformed and Lutheran churches. I'm painting with a broad brush here. There are differences among them. But generally speaking, Protestants that are Reformed and Lutheran share common views. The church is one, not in the sense of being one institution, but in the sense of being committed to one gospel and to one understanding of the sacraments, so of baptism and of the Lord's Supper. Wherever the word is rightly preached and the sacraments are rightly administered, you find the true church. Reformed and Lutheran views of the church's holiness are pretty similar to Catholic views. They don't practice confession and penance, but they do believe that while there can be church discipline, generally speaking, lots of people will remain sinful throughout life, and we need to extend them grace. What does it mean to be Catholic here? Well, Protestants say we should strive for a church that's present everywhere, with a single institution, but realistically, this will not fully be present until Christ comes back. Thanks to sin, the church is too fragmented, and we can't really expect there to be a single worldwide institution. Finally, what does it mean to say the church is apostolic? Well, from a Lutheran and Reformed perspective, to be apostolic is to teach what the apostles taught, neither adding nor distorting things that are taught in the Bible. So there aren't Reformed pastors or bishops or denominations that can trace their lineage back to a disciple directly. Many of the leaders of Reformed churches actually were excommunicated by the Catholic Church during the Reformation era, meaning they lost their apostolic endorsement but they can still claim to be an apostolic church 
because they believe that teachings like justification by faith alone are more biblical and therefore more apostolic than the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. So that disagreement over the attribute of apostolicity is one of the main reasons for the split between these two groups. One more perspective I'll look at, and I really could give you hundreds here, but this is the perspective of Anabaptists. So loosely speaking, uh, these are the ancestors, so to speak, of non-denominational churches, of Baptist churches, of Mennonites, uh, and many other groups. Historically, and I'm taking this from what's known as the Schleitheim Confession, historically Anabaptists would say that to be one, you must have the one true baptism. And Anabaptists believe that you should not be baptized until you believe. So once you're at an age where you can make a decision to follow Christ, then you can be baptized and be a member of the church. This is different from other Christian groups who practice the baptism of infants. That's something we'll talk about later in another class. Anabaptists interpret holiness in a much more strict manner than other groups. Those who sin regularly, according to Anabaptists historically, should be banned from the church. If you sin repeatedly, you are not a part of the body of Christ. Therefore, you're out. Now, in recent decades, this practice, in my understanding, is less common among Mennonites or Baptists or other groups. But in the 1500s and 1600s and 1700s, this was the norm. If the church is to be holy and you persist in sin, then you are not welcome in the church, at least until you're willing to repent. To be Catholic according to Anabaptists, does not mean to be found everywhere institutionally. We have the Spirit to guide us, and the Spirit is working everywhere, though the Church is Catholic. We don't need an institution of that sort. Finally, much like other Protestants, so much like the Reformed and Lutherans, Anabaptists believed that a true Church simply is a Church that teaches what the Apostles taught. Now, usually when I teach the subject, I divide you into groups and I have you imagine that you're leaders of the Anabaptists or the Reformed and Lutherans or the Roman Catholic Church. And then I'll show you on slides five through seven different Christian groups and have you discuss whether or not your group would understand this group to be the true church. So I'm going to illustrate with two examples here to show you how, practically speaking, these disagreements over the meaning of the basic four aspects of the church, the four attributes, can lead to division among Christian groups. So on slide five, let me introduce you to the Anglican Church, or the Church of England. The Anglican Church is headed by what's known as the Archbishop of Canterbury. And unlike most Protestant groups, this archbishop can actually trace his lineage all the way back to the disciples. So we know before Welby was Rowan Williams, before Williams was yet another leader, back and back and back to the first missionaries to England who were sent by mainland continental Europe churches that could trace their lineage to the disciples. This means that the Catholic Church thinks the Anglican Church is much closer to being apostolic than other Protestants. 
And in fact, the Anglican Church and the Catholic Church probably have the best relationship among Protestants and Catholics. The Anglican Church teaches doctrine that most Protestants would accept, so others would say that the Anglican Church is apostolic as well. Where things start to get a little bit dicey is in terms of the variety of beliefs that are allowed among Anglicanism, which is also known as Episcopalianism in the United States. You have a wide range of ethical views, ranging from individuals who agree with same-sex marriage to those who disagree with it, from individuals who accept the ordination of women to those who deny it, and from individuals who are pro-life to individuals that are pro-choice. Generally speaking, if there's a hot-button ethics issue, members of the Anglican Church, within its very leadership, often disagree on these topics while remaining a part of the same institution. Now, I'm not going to get into these ethics issues in this class, but if you are interested, we do discuss the various viewpoints from a Christian standpoint in Christian ethics, which I'll be teaching in the spring of 2021. Maybe see some of you there in person again. Because of these disagreements and this range of practices, ethically speaking, Anabaptists would tend to have concerns about whether or not the Anglican Church is, in fact, being holy. No matter where you land on any of these issues, the argument could be made that in allowing those who disagree with you on such fundamentally important questions to be a part of the same church would be a denial of certain ethical demands to be holy. So Anabaptists would have concerns with Anglicans there. Let's go on and look at another example on slide six, which is that of William Wade Harris. Harris uh, is a man from what is today Ghana, who is arguably the most successful Christian missionary of the 1800s and 1900s. Harris was imprisoned by colonial authorities, where he had a vision, he claims, of the angel Gabriel, who commanded him to evangelize much of Western Africa. Once he was freed, he therefore set out to share the gospel. Now you see a photograph there of Harris, and he was renowned for only carrying several things on his journey. He would carry a cross shaped like a staff, a Bible to preach the gospel, a bowl that he would use to perform baptisms, and an incense burner, uh, which is probably used to alert locals that he was present, so they would come out when they smelled uh, the religious incense. Now, Harris traveled from community to community, sharing a simple gospel that most Christians would accept. He baptized over 100,000 people who responded to his preaching. But what's interesting is that he did not want to establish a new church. So he simply baptized people, brought them into the faith, and told them, wait for people that are coming after me who will tell you what it means to be Christian. Sure enough, Wesleyan missionaries from Europe arrived in places like Ghana and Liberia and found village after village where individuals were waiting for them who said, are you the ones that are going to come and help us start a church? So very easy missionary work there compared to normal. Harris is also renowned for making his converts abandon pagan practices, such as polygamy, and he often was involved in the destruction of of idols in various, and totems in various communities that he went into in his ministry. 
Now, the Roman Catholic Church, despite the fact that they're probably happy that he is sharing biblical teachings with those who have not heard before, the Catholic Church would not accept what Harris is doing and the groups that Harris established as being the true church. This is because Harris does not have apostolic succession. He has not been ordained to ministry, and so therefore he is not thought to be able to perform a baptism. The Catholic Church allows exceptions to this rule in some extreme circumstances, but my understanding of Catholic case law is that these baptisms would not be valid from a Catholic perspective. Furthermore, the fact that he had no concern for connecting new converts with the institutional church, much less the Catholic Church, is something that would lead Catholics to say that his ministry is not one and is not Catholic. On the other hand, in this instance, we can see that Anabaptists would be very pleased with Harris. He baptized people who converted to the faith as adults or as children old enough to understand. So he practiced believer's baptism. He was very strict in ethics, making converts abandon pagan practices. So he would fit the Anabaptist understanding of being holy and of being apostolic. On the other hand, many Protestants who were Reformed and Lutheran might have questions about Harris. They would want to know, once Harris establishes a church, will infant baptism be practiced or not? If Harris doesn't practice infant baptism, and it seems that most African indigenous churches, as they are known, um, who came from the converts of Harris, don't practice this. So if these groups didn't practice infant baptism, um, Reformed and Lutheran Christians would say that they are not the true church because they are not one with the one correct practice of the sacraments. So those are just two examples that illustrate how, while there's a general agreement that the church is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic, there's great disagreement about what this means in practice. And as a result, Christian groups are able to look at other Christian groups with some skepticism. Now, I should remind you that each student needs to learn one perspective, Anabaptist, Catholic, or Reformed Lutheran. You don't need to learn all three. Second, I should add that this isn't really how the doctrine of the church is supposed to work. I do this exercise asking you to consider whether something is a true church for learning purposes, but not because I'm teaching you this doctrine so you can drive down Broadway and Sterling and say, well, that's not a church, that's not a church, that's not a church. That's not the goal of this doctrine. Okay, I have... Uh, two final things that I would like to teach you on slide 11. Just some quick vocab words. These will be on the test as well. The first vocabulary word is a distinction between the visible church and the invisible church. The visible church consists of those who have gathered together on any given Sunday. The invisible church consists of those who are truly united to Christ through union with Christ. It's important to know these are not the same. On any given Sunday, there are going to be people in a church building who are not truly joined with Christ, who might be terrible, sinful people as a result. They might even be leaders in the church. Of course, there are going to be people who are joined with Christ and are still pretty terrible. Not much sanctification has happened yet. 
So I'm not trying to make that emphasis as much. It's just to note that you can't identify a group of people showing up on Sunday morning as the true church. One more distinction is between the church militant and the church triumphant. The church militant consists of those in the invisible church, the true believers, who are still alive and fighting sin and temptation. That's why they're called militant. The church triumphant consists of those in the invisible church who have died and are already with Christ in heaven. Once again, remember that when I speak of the church and theology, I have both in mind, the living and the dead. And sometimes I find this distinction helpful when I show up at chapel on a Wednesday morning and there are maybe 20 people singing along with the hymns. Other people are asleep or on phones or whatever the case may be. I understand that obligatory chapel isn't always the ideal, even though I believe it's still important to have chapel. But in those times when people aren't engaging, I remind myself that as the church militant may be smaller and less engaged at that moment, when I sing, I am joining in with the hymns of the church triumphant, those who are already in the presence of Christ in heaven. And when I do so, I find myself better able to engage in worship, regardless of how my surroundings are that day. So that's the doctrine of the church in a nutshell, at least on a theoretical side. Come back next lecture to talk about some more practical issues in terms of the hypocrisy within the church that we've encountered periodically throughout this class. Until then, though, I hope you will all be well.